all set. And we have one assignment due today, which is homework number two. Um, if you're turning in a paper copy, I'll take it to the after class. Or if you're going to turn it in online, you can submit that anytime up until uh, 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. Uh, the other things for this weekend, we have uh, two quizzes. The iTunes quiz and quiz number two are up and available as of now. I activated them before I came to class, so they're actually up and ready now. If you want to go ahead and take them, you're welcome to do that. Um, that covers chapters two and three on the one quiz. iTunes quiz one covers pictures from the 20th of May, the first day of class, through today. Um, that makes 11 pictures. There's 12 questions on it. So there's one free question that just says click A. <laughs> So make sure you select A on it. Don't select B, C, or D where it says this is not the right answer. So you get there's one free question. Just click A on it and you automatically get, you know you're going to get one out of 12 right on that one. So make sure you do that just because there were only 11 pictures and instead of me having to try to transport the programs and stuff home, I just figured, eh, we'll just, because I won't be coming in tomorrow with campus closed. So only 11 questions. There'll be 12 questions on it, but only 11 pictures. So one question from each picture from the 20th through today and that. For those, I just recommend before you take the quiz, just skim through the pictures. Familiar, remind yourself of them. So a lot of them we've talked about in class. A couple of them you might not have seen. It just helps to have seen it first and you know, read the caption, maybe skim, skim through the thing, just so you have some idea when you're taking it. You do have 20 minutes on that, so you've got time to go back and look at the images. So it shouldn't be that bad of a quiz, we hope, right? All right. Uh, quiz two is same format as quiz one. You do have two attempts on both of these. You can go into both of them twice. So something happens the first time, you've got a second chance to get in. And it won't hurt you. It will take your highest of the two scores. The other thing due on Monday is the first of the article reviews. So you do need that in on Monday as well. Um, again, Monday means Tuesday morning. So if you want to wait until Monday night to do it, but if you want to start looking at that this weekend, you can. There are a whole bunch of articles up on D2L. If you want to select one of those, you're welcome to use it. Or you're welcome to, of course, go ahead and pick out your own article. So if you want, if you're doing something that you're not sure of, or if you're not sure if it's an appropriate article, you can always contact me first. I'll let you know. So give me the link to it or reference to it, and I'll be happy to take a look at it first and let you know bef before you try to do it. And then homework three I gave you last time. That's the nice easy one, only five questions. And that's due on Tuesday. And then I know we just took an exam. Guess what? Exam three will be next week coming up. That's chapters three, which we just finished on telescopes. Chapters four through eight. Again, one unit, chapters four through eight. And then chapter nine, which will be through by, by that time. So that's what's coming up. Hey, quick question. Yes? What's the length of that article? You, uh, the length that I'm for the written? Uh, written? About two to three pages is typical. I have people who try to do it in one page or one and a half pages and it just, you don't quite, you can't get everything in that you need, that I'm looking for on it. I have people who've written seven or eight pages on it. It's a lot more than you need to write. I don't penalize you. I don't have, you know, a specific word count that you can't go over as some, sometimes they do. But you don't, if you're writing eight pages, you're writing a lot more than you need to. But two to three double space pages is, is usually good. Anything else? Alrighty then. Well, we have a picture for today. The one-armed spiral galaxy. And that's unusual. There's actually two, two couple of spiral galaxies. Well, number of galaxies in this picture, but two spiral galaxies that stand out. 
the big one to the left hand side, a little littler one to the right, actually probably not much smaller than the other one, just significantly further away so it looks a little bit smaller. This is more of a traditional spiral galaxy here on the right. It has a couple of sets of arms coming off of it. So a pair of arms, sort of like our own galaxy. But the larger one on the left-hand side is a more unusual one in that there's just, you can trace one spiral arm in and you only see one. You can almost trace it in from here and loop it around and around and right into the center. And there's no second spiral arm visible. So some of the computer simulations that have been done have been able to try to explain how galaxies would form with just a single spiral arm. Although we're still trying to really get a good handle on how we form spiral arms in the first place. So why does a galaxy form this kind of structure? Why are there galaxies that have this spiral structure? <coughs> Excuse me. While others do not. So we're still actually working on that, but some computer simulations seem to show that the spiral galaxy, the spiral arms will form when galaxies collide with each other. So when two galaxies actually interact with each other, they can actually pull the material into this type of pattern, into a spiral pattern around it. Spiral pattern is very blue. You'll notice that the arms are quite blue compared to the central part of the galaxy. That is really how the galaxy looks because it is uh, much younger stars. There's a lot of gas and dust out here in the outer portions and that's where a lot of the star new stars have formed. <coughs> okay, The new stars are relatively young. They're also the ones that are the brightest are the big hot blue stars. So the spiral arms tend to look very blue. And that's what you're seeing there. The older stars towards the center, all the young stars uh, that were the young hot blue stars are long since gone and you have more of a yellowish white color coming from the center. So it's really showing us just the different types of stars that are present there. Now we'll come back in a couple of weeks. Only have a couple of weeks, right? We're a third of the way through the class now. Yay! And a week from today, we'll be saying we're halfway through the class. <laughs> so we'll be coming, and we'll actually talk a little bit more about galaxies and the general properties of them later. But nice little picture there to show. And the other thing, again, showing the showing the sizes. Not not a little tiny spiral galaxy. A spiral galaxy probably much similar to that one, but just way beyond it out in space. You don't you don't get that perspective when you look out at space. The image looks like, oh, there's all this stuff right here. But many of these objects, there's a few of them that would be some of the stars, would actually be in our own galaxy, much, much closer. Closer galaxies, further galaxies. And some of these objects could be even more distant. Some of the fuzzier objects could be even more distant galaxies. So something that you really lose that perspective when you look out into space. Questions, questions? No questions, no questions, no questions. Alrighty, and we'll go talk about the planets for a little bit. Now, as I said, you'll, you'll note on this, this is going to go, this one slideshow is going to go through chapters four through eight, and we'll start on this today and finish it up hopefully on Monday, and then get on to chapter, chapter nine at that point on the sun. Um, solar system is not the key part of this course. This uh, course is mainly on the stars and galaxies, but part of the uh, write-up of the class says that we go through a unit on the solar system too. So instead of trying to go through each of those chapters in detail, which is a lot more than we'd be able to, to do, as I said, there's a whole course that goes through the planets in detail. I've tried to take some of the high points and we're just going to kind of uh, breeze, through, breeze through that. 
So when you're looking at these, again, don't try to read all five chapters. Unless you really want to, don't try to read all five chapters. Look at what I've given you in the PowerPoints. Those are the things that I'm going to be looking for you to get out of this, this unit. So you don't need to go through and read the entire chapters in detail. There's a lot more information there, a lot of interesting stuff, but not that we're going to be covering here. So. As I summarize this down a little bit, you'll see, you'll see this whole sections will be, will be jumping around. We'll start off with chapter four. May as well do it in order, right? Um, just sort of looking at what there is in the solar system and how that's changed over the uh, centuries. Long ago, we knew about the moon. Moon's always been known. We've known about the stars, been able to see those. We've been able to see five planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Okay. So we've five planets only, no, no Earth. Earth was known, but Earth wasn't known as a planet at the time. And we'd seen things like comets, meteors, shooting stars, things that we see. Those were really what we knew about. And that was about it, um, really, up until several hundred years ago. It's now expanded greatly. Now what do we know about in the solar system? Well, we've gone from five planets to eight adding Uranus, Neptune, and the Earth, including the Earth now as a planet. So we've go, added a several planets. We've added a star. We now know that the Sun is a star. They knew about the Sun, but didn't really know of it as a star as being similar to the stars in the sky. We've now got, now the number's outdated. We're pushing probably about 180 moons in the solar system right now. Um, most of those are in the outer part of the solar system. In fact, there's only three moons in the inner four planets. Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars have three moons between them, meaning we've got uh, pushing close to 200 moons among the four outermost planets. And we also know about things that were, have been discovered more recently. We knew about comets before, but asteroids and meteoroids, little tiny bits of pieces in space. We've added in dwarf planets. That includes Pluto now. Um, Eris, one of the other objects out there in what's labeled in the diagram as the Kuiper Belt. One of these other objects, there's a whole ton of objects out there. Pluto is one of the largest of these, and Eris is actually slightly larger than Pluto, another one of the dwarf planets, in addition to one of the largest asteroids. So there's actually several dwarf planets that are now known. And the Kuiper Belt objects. These are things, so much of this was not known to the very earliest astronomers. They knew only the very basics. They knew about the moon. The things that you can see, essentially what they knew about was what you could see if you go out in the sky and look at the sky at night. You can see the stars. You can see the planets if you know where to look. If a comet is visible, you can see a comet. You can see meteors. You can see a shooting star. But you can't just see any of these other things without the power, without the addition of a telescope. So the telescopes that we added allowed us to discover things like asteroids, discover things like dwarf planets, discover the moons in the solar system, and between that and actual space travel to those objects actually really uh, helped us quite a bit in expanding really our knowledge of what there is in the solar system. The planets are divided into two groups. There's the terrestrial planets, which are those that are really a lot like the Earth. That's Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. And there's the Jovian planets. Jovian planets are the ones that are a lot like Jupiter. So Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. They're quite different. 
there's two completely different sets in that Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. If we really wanted to, we could go land on all of them. We could actually land a spacecraft on any of them. There's a surface to land on. Well, we're here on Earth right now. Um, we've landed spacecraft on Mars, right? We have the Mars rovers that are traveling around Mars right now. Uh, the Soviets landed a couple of spacecraft on Venus. So it's possible, very difficult to land on Venus because its atmosphere and its uh, the pressure and its atmosphere and the composition of it is really not conducive to be able to for uh, materials to stand up very hold up very long. Mercury, we've never landed on, but we could if we really if we really wanted to. If we wanted to put a spacecraft on the surface of Mercury, it's something that could be could be done. The Jovian planets, on the other hand, you could not. There is no solid surface. They're a they're like the sun. They're a big ball of gases, and you could never land on you could never land on them. We've actually sent a probe into the atmosphere of Jupiter and it just travels down and down and until the pressure got so high that the probe was destroyed and crushed by the immense, at immense atmosphere, it could send back information. But there's never any place that you could go down there and actually land. So you'd never be able to land on any of those Jovian planets, although they do have moons that you would be able to land on. So if you ever wanted, if you wanted to explore the outer solar system, We've actually landed on one of the moons of Saturn. We've actually sent a spacecraft that actually landed on the surface and explored the surface of Saturn's large moon. The table over here is really showing you the comparison between the two. What are the differences? And they're really very distinct. The terrestrial planets are very close to the sun. Jovian planets are all far away. Terrestrial planets are spaced closely together. They're all compacted in the inner part of the solar system. Jovian planets are really wide apart. Terrestrial planets have small sizes, both in terms of how much matter is there and in how big, they, how big they actually are. The Jovian planets are much larger. Rocky as compared to gaseous, solid surface, no solid surface. So you can land on these ones, you can't land on these ones. High density, low density. Terrestrial planets rotate a lot slower than the Jovian planets. Jupiter, even though it's the largest planet, actually spins around once every but under, under, a little under 10 hours. So a day, on, a day on Jupiter would be 10 hours, 10 hours long. It spins around that quickly. As compared to the Earth, you know, at a relatively leisurely 24 hours taking to spin around once. And actually Mercury and Venus take even longer periods of time, taking uh, 50, for Merc 50 some days for Mercury and over 200 days for Venus to spin around once. Magnetic fields we'll look at, very weak magnetic fields around the Earth and the other terrestrial planets, very strong ones out in the outer part of the solar system. And then around those planets, we don't have any rings in the inner solar system. Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, none of them has a ring system around it. But every single one of the Jovian planets has a ring system. Not just Saturn, Saturn's got the nice beautiful ones, but all of the Jovian, planet, all of the Jovian planets actually have rings. And, as I said earlier, very few moons, just three in the inner solar system among all of the terrestrial planets, and well over a hundred in the outer part of the solar system. So a big difference between these two types of planets that we see in our solar system. Now looking at some of the different things that we see, we're going to go through in the following chapters, we'll look at each of the planets in detail. But when we look at the, some of the other objects that we see, uh, one of the prominent ones are comets. 
Comets stand out and have been known for a long time just because they stand out in the sky. In the sky. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead, ma'am. Um, yep. I just have a question about the homework report. Yeah. For the first question, it has it's like tells us to list three of the differences between the crustal and Jovian planets. Can we do that in like a chart form? Yeah. Okay. Yep. So comets are again very easily to be able to be very easy to be seen. They stand out in the night sky. They also are a diff, something different. They're a change in the night sky, so they're very obvious to see. Uh, a comet, though, what you see, you really you see only the outer portions of the comet. There's a nucleus way down in here that is not visible on Earth. We can't see it just because it's so tiny and because it's enveloped in this great halo of material. So the nucleus is down there. That's like a big fluffy snowball down at the center. As it comes close to the sun, heats up. Heat up something that's very icy. Particles end up expanding away, away from it. And it forms sort of a little halo of material around it we call the coma. So that's the outer part of the comet here. And then that material gets pushed back away from the sun. So the sun is in this direction. All that material, the pressure of the sun, pushes some of that material back in the shape of a tail. So the tail of a comet always stretching back away from the sun. Now we had a nice comet visible a couple months ago. And there's another one uh, that is due to come in uh, November. So another nice comet that could be nicely visible actually in the northern hemisphere uh, coming up in November. That's comet Ison, I-S-O-N, that will actually be coming. It comes very, very close to the sun, so it should heat up a lot of the material. And if it doesn't completely vaporize and destroy it, then we should have a beautiful tail and a very bright comet to be able to see. Uh, this this fall, but the ma- the major points are the nucleus here. That's the, that's the central part of the comet. When it comes close to the sun, it forms a coma and a tail. When it's far away from the sun, all that's there is the nucleus. You don't see any of the rest of this. Only when it comes close to the sun do we see any of the rest of these uh, parts. When a comet comes around the sun, see the images here. When it's very far away, you don't get much of a tail tail grows drastically as it comes closer to the sun and is heated up significantly more. So, But if you notice the tail there, the tail is always pointing away from the sun. So that means when a comet comes in towards the sun, as it starts on this side, the tail lags behind it. Right? That's what we expect. right? The tail comes behind everything else. But guess what happens? Because it's the sun causing the tail, as that makes a loop around and starts heading away and heading back into the outer solar system again, now the tail is in front of the comet. Yes, sir? Does it go faster when it's coming towards it or when it's going away? The same. same. The same. It, it goes faster when it's closer, so it's moving fastest here according to Kepler's second law when it's closest. But when it's right here and when it's right here, it's moving at the same speed here and the same speed away. So. It, the speed changes. I don't want to make you say nothing. The speed is staying the same. But it doesn't matter whether it's coming in or going out. The speed will be exactly the same. So it will go much faster when it's down here close to the sun. It will be moving much slower. But this half and this half are essentially mere images of each other, just in a different direction. So comet tails are always going to point away from the sun. 
There's two types of tail though. I showed you one in the previous image. If you see here, there's actually two. There's what we call an ion tail that pushes straight away from the sun. And there's another one that lags a little bit behind it. You see the dust, which is called the dust tail. Ion tail is individual atoms. The dust tail is actually a little bit bigger particle, a little bit bigger, heavier particles. They've got a little bit more mass to them, so they kind of fall behind a little bit. So they get left behind a little bit in the orbits. You'll see one tail straight back and the other one kind of lagging behind. So when you look at a comet and look at the two tails, you can always tell where the sun is, what direction is the sun. Because if I see an image of the comet here without the sun, I know the sun has to be in that direction because the tails are pushed away. I also know which way the comet is moving. The comet has to be moving in this direction because there's the dust tail and it's lagging behind the comet in its orbit. Now, comets are associated with meteors. Meteors are if you ever see a shooting star. So a shooting star is a little tiny bit of a comet burning up in the atmosphere. So all the meteors you see, if you ever see a shooting star, that is actually a little tiny piece of a comet that is burning up in the atmosphere. And when it enters the atmosphere, it enters at extremely high speeds and the friction of entering that atmosphere just causes it to vaporize. Typically it's a little piece of ice, a little piece of dust that was left behind. <coughs> As we saw the comet, it had that big halo around it, it had that long tail. Some of that material gets left behind in its orbit as it leaves. So the comet might be long gone. Comet may be way out someplace, but it left some of this material behind. When the Earth happens to pass through that part of the comet's orbit, that's when we see a meteor shower. So it's just those little bits of material that are left behind. A meteor is a big difference than a meteorite. Meteorite is actually a piece that landed here on the ground that you can hold. Those are a completely different thing. The meteors, when you see a shooting star, are little teeny tiny specks of dust that are burning up in the atmosphere. And are really, for the most part, little bits of a comet. Now, some bigger objects do hit the Earth as well. This is actually a uh, crater in, air meteor crater in Arizona. And if you look at that, okay, looks a lot like, you know, surface of the moon. Nice big impact crater here. Uh, stands up so well, happened tens of thousands of years ago. So, did not just recently, but of course you're out in the desert in Arizona. The weathering effects are less than they would be in other places if this had happened to hit, you know, much further north. The weathering effects would be larger and it would get wiped out easier. So a very large object can impact that and you can see the size of the crater that it formed. That's about a kilometer across. This scale is about a kilometer. So you've got an object that's a little more than a kilometer across. So you can imagine the damage that a big object can do striking us. Right? We had one in Russia earlier this year that came through and vaporized in the atmosphere and caused a lot of damage. I mean, you know, fortunately, it's hitting out in the middle of the desert of Arizona and thousands of years ago, if that were to hit in a populated area, it's not a very big object either. Something to form a kilometer crater is probably about a football field in size because it'll form a crater about ten times bigger than it was. So if that's a kilometer in cross, you need about a hundred meters or about the size of a football field. So still a good size, good size hunk of rock coming down from space but not something that's very easy to track and keep track of. But they do happen. We do see impacts on the Earth. There, is, there are evidence for them. 
Um, in fact, we've been hit by as many meteors and had as many craters as the moon has right now. But we have a couple things such as weathering, you know, wind and rain and water and everything that wipes out the craters over time. So most of the craters on the Earth get wiped off by either weathering or volcanic activity, which doesn't happen on the moon, which is why the moon still see, we still see so many craters on it. Now how did we form the solar system? Well, we start off with some great cloud of gas and dust. In fact, you'll see something very much like this when we start talking about galaxies and the formation of galaxies. I'm just on a much bigger scale. But what happens is for some reason the cloud starts to contract. That's the good question. Why? Well, I think I mentioned last time we talked about a supernova when we looked at the picture from yesterday. We talked about supernova. If a supernova were to explode nearby, it might send a shock wave through this cloud that might start it condensing. Once it starts to condense, gravity kicks in and wants to make it collapse. But it doesn't want just nor normally is just going to sit there. It's just a big cloud of gas. It's perfectly happy the way it is. So once you get some kind of shock wave, something, a supernova explosion or something to get it started, then you can actually start to form a star and form a solar system. So as it collapses, everything collapses down to a disk. It spins faster and faster, right? You watch, watch an ice skater. They spin around, right? They spin, uh, spin around, spinning slowly. They pull their arms in. What happens? They spin a lot faster. The cloud's going to do exactly the same thing. It's essentially pulling its arms in. It's got all this material way out, you know, I'm a light year away. This thing could be a light year or so in size. And as it collapses, it pulls it down into solar system size. So it's going to be spinning very, very slowly at this time, at this point. As it collapses lower and lower, it's going to spin faster and faster and faster. Now this also tells us that if this is the method by which the solar system formed, that solar systems should be very common out in the, out in the, the galaxy. We should see a lot of solar systems out there. And that's because this makes it seem like the material that would be here as it forms down into a disk, There'd be lots of material left behind as a star forms at the center. And that means that planet formation would be something that would be very likely to occur. So that's what happens here as we look at that. Again, we started with the initial nebula as the gas cloud collapsed. You've got the nice hot regions by the star at the center. So much hotter at the center as more material is, collided, is collapsing there. And it begins to start to form a star. And after a few million years, you have rocky materials around the star nearby. And you have icy materials much further out. Why? Because of the temperatures. Right? Near the star, it's going to be pretty hot. Are you going to have a lot of icy materials in a place where it's really hot? Right? They're, they're going to be vaporized. Anything that's icy isn't going to be present in the inner solar system. So things like water are very rare in the inner solar system. Right? Earth has all this water, right? Actually not. The Earth has very little water. It's all just concentrated on the surface. Yeah, three quarters of our surface is water. But if you actually look at the entirety of the Earth, once you go down a few miles, there's no water. Now the rest of the Earth would be completely dry. So in terms of the volume of the Earth, there's only a tiny, tiny bit of water. It's just that it's all concentrated on the surface, which is where, which is where we are. So there's very little of ices of any kind, water or waters or like that, in the inner solar system. All that's going to form there is the rockier materials. Now this is starting to explain how we get these two types of planets. 
In the inner part of the solar system, we get rocky materials which form rockier planets. It's a higher temperature. So things like ices were not able to condense out of the, out of the solar nebula. And then over a few hundred million years, all of these objects that start to form, they're called planetesimals, you know, little pieces of planets. They slowly collide together and build up to larger and larger objects. So you go from something like this with a lot of objects here to fewer, as you, but fewer but much larger objects. And then finally, after about 100 million years, you actually have the solar system as we know it. And then that would persist to this day. So little bits, as you start to condense the material, you get again those rockier, rocky and metallic materials condense at much higher temperatures. You can actually form them in close to the sun. Icy materials much further away from the sun. And that shows the two types of planets that we see in our solar system. Do we see this elsewhere? Well, this is an example of the star Beta Pictoris uh, on the left-hand side showing a disk of material around it. So it actually has, you know, here's our solar system to scale. So you'd put our solar system, most it would really be buried deep within this part that's blocked out, which would be the star. But this could be some of that early, early nebula collapsing. It's already collapsed to a disk and it's slowly going to begin, begin to collapse in and coalesce into form planets. So this star could be one that's an example of actually forming planets right now. On the right hand side is an artist's conception of what you might, might see. So not actually an image of it, but actually an artist's conception of the star forming there with the disk of material around it that could be forming planets. So if we could come back in 10 million years, 50 million years, and look again and travel to Beta Pictoris, we might actually be able to see you know, a solar system that has formed there. Now I'd mentioned the temperatures already. We talked a little bit about this before. Uh, this is just shown in graphical form. The temperature is going to get much less as you move out from the sun. Right? The sun is here at the center of the solar system on this graph. As you get closer and closer to the sun, the temperature is going to get hotter. Right? Getting close to the sun, it's going to be a much higher temperature. And that means that the different materials that are going to be able to condense out, that are going to be able to become solid pieces that can form a planet, is going to depend on where you are in the solar system. If you're really, really close to the sun, the things that condense out the easiest are the metals. Metals and metallic oxides, and that's what we find on mercury. Mercury is actually made up not so much of rock, is almost all metal. A lot of metal in mercury. As you get further out towards Venus and the Earth, you start to get to the points where rocks condense out more and you get more rock than metal. So Mercury, or Venus, Earth, and Mars are a little mi mixture of rock and metallic materials. As you get further and further out, you get out towards Jupiter and Saturn out here. Jupiter would be about at 5, Saturn about at 10. You start to get to the point where the ices can start to condense out. So it really gives us the two different types of planets just because of the temperatures of where they formed in the solar nebula. So that explains where we see rocky planets and where we see the giant uh, Jovian planets. Now interestingly enough when we look at other solar systems and we now know lots, hundreds of other solar systems, they don't all look just like ours. We think this makes perfect sense and okay we're always going to form small rocky planets close to the star and large giant planets far away. But we're actually finding in other solar systems, we're finding planets the size of Jupiter, 
that orbit closer to their stars than Mercury does to ours. So there may be some reworking of what we understand to try to understand other solar systems and how they, how they formed. But we're actually finding very, very large planets that have formed very close to their stars elsewhere in the galaxy. Now how do we find other planets? These are a couple examples of how we might find them. Uh, we talked about gravity uh, earlier. Gravity is just pull, uh, every object pulling on each other. And what, you, what you'll do is you'll pull on the star. The star pulls on the planet and keeps it in orbit. But the planet also tugs on the star. Now when we look at them, through, if we try to look at it through a telescope and we look at these stars, we can't see the planets. Planets are too faint compared to the star. So there's no way we're going to be able to pick them up. But we can see the star and we can see that little tug each time in the velocity of the star. Because when the planet is on one side of the star, it's tugging it a little bit this way. When it's moved around to the other side, now it's tugging it a little bit in the other direction. We're going to see that as a change in its velocity. And that's what the first graph here is showing that we're seeing that the graph of this star, sometimes it's being tugged in one direction, sometimes in the other, and then back in a very regular pattern. Meaning that there's something there that we can't see that's pulling on it a little bit. That's actually pulling on and tugging it and causing its orbit to change. So when we see things like that, we can actually deduce and use new calculations to figure out what kind of planet must be there. How big must the planet be to account for the variations that we see. That's the nice simple version. The more realistic version is the one in the bottom graph. Doesn't look near as pretty, right? It's like a big mess there. It's getting tugged around this way and this way and this way and all sorts. There's still a pattern there. You can still sort of start to see a regular pattern occurring. You know, here's a group of sectors, a group, here's a group, here's another one. And so you can see a pattern there. And fortunately, modern computers can decipher that and say, well, instead of just one planet, there's actually maybe three of them. And you can recalculate and say there's this one that's orbiting really close, another bigger one that's orbiting you know, at a medium distance, and a much larger one in this type of orbit much further away. So a computer analysis of that type of variation, same thing we see, just not as simple as the one we see in the upper graph, tells us that we can, that we can then redecipher what that solar system must be like. And that's one of the ways that we can determine or measure solar systems, find solar systems, in other, around other stars. Oops, one second, and that was the last. You're almost done with chapter four already. So I said, we're going we're to go through them very quickly, but I'm only expecting you to have a very basic knowledge of them. The other way we detect stars, which I did not put on here, is we look for eclipses. And that happens when we observe a star. Okay, an eclipse occurs on the Earth, right, when the moon passes in front of the sun and blocks out its light. Well, if we happen to be looking at a planetary system just right, and we're looking at it edge on, meaning normally you took, think of a solar system and you got the sun and you got a planet orbiting around it and you're looking down on it like this. If you're looking at it like this, you're never going to see an eclipse because the, you're gonna, the planets would just be moving around the sun. If you're instead looking from this direction, so imagine yourself looking here, you will sometimes see those planets pass directly in front of their star. If they do that, they're going to cause the brightness of the star to change by a little tiny bit. 
Okay? Not a lot. We're not getting a total eclipse. The planet is not near big enough to be able to block out the entire sun, entire star, but it will block out a little bit of that light and make it look a little bit fainter than it otherwise would. And we can measure that we can measure that. So there's a satellite, there's a Kepler satellite that is actually orbiting around the Earth that actually looks at all of these and studies thousands of stars, thou- many thousands of stars, and looks for this little bit of variation in brightness that to show that a planet was, dropped, was blocking the star for a short time. When you see it happen once, well, maybe something special happened. But when you see it on a regular pattern, if you look at the brightness in a graph, and the star is typically about this bright, but every once in a while you get a little bit of a dip, and it occurs at a very regular pattern, not more regular than I've actually drawn there, but a very regular pattern, you can then figure out that there must be something passing in front of this star on a very regular basis. And that's how we're actually finding a lot of the planetary systems that we know now. And we've actually detected, we're pushing up towards about a thousand planets that have been detected outside of our solar system. So a large number of planets have been detected primarily in the last 15, 15 or so years. You know, more than 20 years ago, we might have known a hand, if we knew any planets, it was a handful. Certainly knew the ones in our solar system, but outside of that, we would have only known a handful. Now we're actually detecting hundreds, many hundreds of other solar systems and planets, and we're starting to be able to learn a lot more about planetary system formation. Before that, all we knew was one solar system. We thought there were more out there, but we didn't know about any. We didn't know the properties of any other, how many planets, how, were they, how far were they away from their stars. We didn't know any of that. Now we're starting to find a lot more, and including to the point where we're actually able to detect planets the size of the Earth. So we can actually detect Earth-sized planets around other stars, not just big giant ones that would block out a lot of their starlight, but even littler planets. The technology is improving to that, that, that much. So we're now detecting lots and lots of planets elsewhere in the solar system. All right, as we rush through these chapters, chapter 5 is on the Earth and the Moon. And I just have a couple things I want to cover in this chapter. Um, One is just the tides. Since we didn't cover that when we talked about gravity, I wanted to cover that a little bit. Um, If you've ever gone to the coast or anything, you see the tide tables telling you when when it's going to be high tide and when it's going to be low tide. And those tides are caused primarily by the gravitational force of the moon. And gravitational force, if you remember, depends on the mass of two objects and it depends on the distance between them. When two objects are close to each other, like the Earth and the Moon, that means that the Moon is pulling on the near side of the Earth a little bit more. It's a little bit closer to the Moon. Not much, but a little bit closer. So it's pulling on the near side of the Earth a little bit more, on the far side of the Earth a little bit less, and that serves to try to distort the Earth. It wants to try to pull the Earth out of shape. It wants to pull the Earth into an oval shape. Well, trying to distort solid rock isn't easy, right? Gravitational, the force of the moon isn't going to distort the Earth itself very much, but water flows very easily. So it does pull on the water and it actually provides an extra gravitational force on the water, pulling it away from one side of the Earth. And then on the other side, pulling the Earth a little bit more than it's pulling water on the far side, so water actually bulges to both sides, giving you two high tides about 12 hours apart. So as the Earth rotates, you'll get a high tide here, 
and you'll get a high tide here and then in between. So here at this time you get a high tide, six hours later you have a low tide, another six hours back to high tide, and the pattern repeats itself. Now it's not precisely six hours, because don't forget the moon is moving around the earth at the same time, so that's also causing it to change and be a little bit different in terms of timing. But the tides are caused primarily by the gravitational force of the moon. Now the sun helps as well, the sun has, the, has a tidal force on the earth as well, and if the sun and the moon are lined up, you can actually get stronger tides, and I think, did I give you that one? One second. No, I did not. Okay. Let me just mention it briefly. If the sun and the moon are lined up, you can actually get higher tides because you've got, you know, if you're at new moon, moon's here, sun is out here in the same direction. Now you've got both of them pulling together and making a little bit stronger tide than usual. If you're at a quarter phase moon when the moon is here and the sun would be way down here, moon's pulling in one direction, sun's countering that and trying to balance it out and the tides aren't quite as strong. So the strength of the tides will vary from month to month depending on the relative positioning of the Earth and the Moon as well. Now as I did mention, they're moving relative to each other, that the Earth is rotating. So it's rotating faster than the Moon is going around it. The Earth rotates once every 24 hours. The Moon takes almost a month to go around the Earth once. Meaning that the Moon tries to bulge out the water towards it. But as it does that, the Earth is rotating and rotates that water away from the Moon, which actually pulls that bulge, gives it a little bit, uh, pulls this bulge of material a little bit further away from the Moon, not pointing directly towards the Moon. And that is slowly, slowly slowing down the Earth's rotation. Now the Earth, the Moon is pulling, instead of pulling straight at the Earth, it's pulling a little bit on an angle pulling it backwards if you think of it. The Earth's trying to rotate this way. The Moon's pulling an extra force this way trying to slow it down. And the Earth is slowly over time rotating a little bit slower. Not something that we're going to notice in our lifetimes. You know, The day isn't going to be going from 24 hours to 25 hours anytime soon. But when we talk about astronomical times over millions of years or a billion years from now, the Earth will be significantly slower. And that will continue until the two end up locked together. Meaning that the Earth's rotation will exactly match the revolution period of the Moon around the Earth. Moon takes 27 days or so to make one trip around the Earth. When the Earth has slowed down enough from 24 hours to about 27 days, then this bulge will always keep pointing because they'll be rotating in lockstep. They'll be rotating together. That means that wherever that happens to happen, if you live on that part of the Earth, many billions of years from now, when you come back billions of years from now to see this, the Moon will either always be visible or it'll never be visible. If this were to occur at this location right here and we lived, here's North America, we stay in North America, we never see the Moon. The moon will never rise or set because we're spinning just as fast as it's rotating around. Yes? Okay, so doesn't that mean there would also be a spot where you People will always be in the dark. <laughs> no, nope. And if it's rotating together when it comes around to the sun, whoever's in between that moon and the well, never mind. Uh, it wouldn't always be. No, okay. you. It would mean in terms of like seeing eclipses, only certain parts of the world would yeah. see eclipses. But nothing would ever be completely. You still have the sun is not part of this. The sun's way off here. It's just the moon and the earth that'll be locked together. 
So here if you lived, if it stopped like this is shown, here in North America, you're never going to see the moon. Just as if you go travel to the far side of the moon, you don't see the Earth. You never, Earth never rises, Earth never sets. Earth doesn't exist as far as you're concerned. If you stay on this side of the moon, you always see the Earth. Because this side of the moon always points towards the Earth. The Earth will eventually do the same thing. Again, not in our lifetimes, not in many lifetimes. We're talking billions of years to slowly slow it down fractions of a second every year. But over, long, over billions of years, that adds up. So, I wanted to cover that on the Earth, and the other thing I wanted to look at was a little bit on the Moon. Um, there's some of the craters again on the left, right-hand side picture. Look a lot like the crater that we saw on the Earth in a previous image. Um, large impacts that have struck the surface of the Moon. We certainly see a lot more of them on the Moon. Again, that's because there's no weathering effects. We don't have any weather on the Moon to wipe out those craters. We don't have any modern volcanic activity to wipe out those craters anymore. So the ones that formed three billion years ago are still there. Three billion years on the surface of the Earth, it's a long time. Right? That's a long time and things get wiped out very easily. Even if you take a mountain, right? You know, watch the mountain. You've got the mountains here. We've got the Rocky Mountains in the US and we've got the Appalachians, right? At one point the Appalachians were just as big. You know, go back hundreds of millions of years. They were big tall mountains as well. They've slowly been worn down. You know, a millimeter a year seems like nothing. Are you going to notice it over your lifetime? Probably not, right? You're not going to notice that they're winding down. Over a hundred million years? That adds up to a lot of millimeters. And eventually you come back, they're slowly being, wipe, being wiped out. The moon doesn't have that effect. The moon doesn't have any sort of weathering effects to slowly destroy them. So things that were there billions of years ago are still actually there and present. Now, the moon has uh, two types of terrain. It has the very dark areas, which are what you see when you look at the moon. Right? You look out at the moon, you see the man in the moon, right? See all the features, all those big flat areas are actually uh, called maria for seas. Now early astronomers would have, might have thought they were actually you know, water on the moon. Okay? We, know that's, we know that's silly now, but it makes perfect sense. They looked like smoother areas. Even, without, you know, even before a telescope, you could certainly see that there was something smoother on here. And could those be actually be you know, oceans on the surface of the moon? And that's how they, how they got their name. The Maria are just those flatter areas and are in fact some of the areas where the very earliest Apollo missions actually landed. Now those were volcanic, but the moon has not been volcanically active for many billions of years now. So that's why it's essentially unchanged. If you could go back in time a billion years and look at the moon, it wouldn't look all that different. If you go back in time a billion years and look at the Earth, it's changed. Earth has changed quite a, quite a bit. So the moon looks much as it do, did a billion or two billion years ago, whereas the Earth and other objects like that have changed significantly. But the maria are the flat areas. They were volcanically active. And lava was able to flow and wipe out any craters that would have formed here. So you see lots of cratering around it, lots of material. You see very few craters on it. And most of those are the few that have formed relatively recently. So cratering hasn't stopped. It's still ongoing. Here you can see a whole bunch of craters. Very few craters. A couple prominent bright ones. Crater Copernicus, named after the astronomer there. You know, very bright, very bright prominent crater. But not a lot of them in the Maria. Most of the craters there were wiped out during lava flows early, early on in the history of the moon. 
How do we form a crater? Well, a meteoroid of some kind strikes the moon. Um, at incredibly high speeds, these things don't just you know, drop down to the surface of the moon like that. You know, it's, they're, they're coming in you know, f- speeds faster than a rifle bullet. I mean, they're, they're tearing into the moon, a big object. It's going to actually cause an explosion. So it vaporizes as it strikes into the surface of the moon, vaporizes, explodes, throws material out. We saw that in that previous picture. I'm going to go back one for a second here. If you note Copernicus here, can you sort of see the rays streaking out from it? That's actually material that was thrown out during that explosion. Again, millions of years ago, not just recently, but we can still see that today. That's due to the explosion that occurred when that meteoroid struck struck the surface of the moon and exploded. Then what's left behind after the explosion is a crater behind where the crust has been completely smashed, material that has been thrown out, so you've got the bowl of the crater here, and the material that's been thrown out along it. That material will slowly get wiped out. We don't see that on the Earth. The ejecta, first of all, we got an atmosphere. Atmosphere kind of retards the flowing of material, right? Starts to get winds and it gets blown around. On the moon you don't have that. Material gets thrown out in big streams. It also gets worn down a lot quicker on the surface of the Earth. So on the surface of the Earth you can easily wipe out this ejecta through rain, right? Rain and wind quickly wipe that out again over thousands of years, over relatively short time scales um, astronomically speaking. And then in forming the crater, a crater is typically about 10 times the size of the meteoroid that created it. So if you have you know, a, little, a relatively small, mete- a small meteoroid, maybe a kilometer across, that's not all that big. A kilometer isn't all that big and it ever, ever struck the Earth. That means you've got a 10 kilometer crater. So a, small, a relatively small meteor, something just about a kilometer across, could easily wipe out a city. You know, that would strike any major city. Exactly. 10 kilometer crater, that's not the extent of the damage. The damage goes well beyond that. You know, you pretty much wiped out any city if one of those, if something that size were to strike. There are plenty that size out there and plenty of them that we don't even know about. They're so small, kilometer sounds big, but when you're talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of miles away trying to find this little tiny object, it's hard to find. They don't, they don't just stand out like the planets or anything do. So that's how big of a crater it will form, and about two times as deep. So kilometer wide, it means the crater is going to be about two kilometers deep and about 10 kilometers in size. That's just the beginning of the damage. Of course, it goes well beyond that. You know, the, the crater at the edge of the crater, your damage does not end. There's your impact, there's your crater. Okay, you're done. If, you, if your, your house was out here, you're safe, right? You know, forget it. That's going to be like a massive earthquake. It's going to destroy everything in a whole area around there. Good thing for Earth is that we got lots of water, right? Well, sort of. We do. So the chances of something hitting a city are relatively small. But hitting the ocean isn't necessarily much better if you live near the coast. You know, we're a little bit safer. We're a little bit further in here. But if you're near the coast and you hit close, how about the giant tidal wave that's going to come from that splash? Or a tsunami. Tsunami, yeah. Same. <laughs> Same idea, that will wipe out the coast. So, same kind of thing that will occur. Um, in terms of craters, most of the most of the impacts that occurred, most of what we see on the moon, is about four billion years old. There are still 
impacts. We've still seen them recently on the Earth, on the Moon. There have been recent, more recent impacts. But most of, the, most of the impacts occurred 4 billion years ago. The cratering has dropped off much, much less. Doesn't mean that we're safe. Just means that those very large impacts, such as the one that caused the extinction of the dinosaurs, tend to occur on, instead of you know every 100,000 years or so, they occur in 100 million year increments. So when are we due next? No clue. Couldn't, couldn't tell you that there's one going to hit us, you know. And, and would you want to know? If there was something giant coming towards us and we couldn't, and we could do nothing about it, you know, not able to, can't send somebody up there to destroy it, you know, would you want to know or would you just want to <laughs> be vaporized one day? Good question. Could go either way, but. All right, so let's form the moon. Let's, how do we get the moon here? Our moon is unusual. Our moon is quite unusual in that it's very large compared to us. So this is how we think the moon ha was able to form. That we had an earth here in the process of forming and beginning to separate into metallic material in the blue and rocky material in the red. And this is, very, this is four and a half billion years ago. The earth was just starting to form. So this is not, you know, no, no life, nothing else had even begun yet. And that there was some object, maybe about the size of Mars, that smashed into the Earth slightly off-center. So it didn't smash into it directly, but crashed into it. And a lot of that material, the bluer material, the metallic material, ended up coalescing into the Earth's core. Makes the Earth a little more metallic than it otherwise would be. Which we are, Earth is actually the densest of the planets. Which you wouldn't think, you'd think Mercury should be since it's so much closer to the Sun. So Earth is actually a little bit denser, it explains that. And it also explains a lot of the red material left behind, which would be the rockier material, was able to coalesce into forming the moon. Now, that explains a couple things. It explains what we see in terms of compositions of the Earth and the moon. They're really quite different. The Earth is much more metal rich than the moon. The moon is very lacking in metals. Their densities are quite different. The density of the moon compared to the density of the Earth, there's a big difference between the two. The moon is much more uh, just a rocky object. The Earth has a lot more metals. It also explains, because this is something that just wouldn't happen all the time, it also explains why there's only one large moon in the entire inner solar system. That some impact happened to occur around the Earth to form the moon. Didn't happen on Venus. Didn't happen to happen on Mercury. Could have just as easily. They might have had the large moon. But they, it did not. That's the, only, and that's the only object that we see in the inner solar system with a large moon. So material ejected from the Earth and from this other large uh, Mars-sized object would have then formed the moon here. And what coalesced finally condensed down to form the Earth was a little bit richer in metallic material. So these are actually clips of a computer model showing how this possibly could have occurred. I said the moon hasn't changed a whole lot. A little bit. There was the moon four billion years ago on the left. That was very early on. That's when it was constantly getting impacted. It's just completely covered in craters. At some point after that, we had a lot of big impact basins, a lot of impacts. The moon he was able to heat up inside and melt some of the, some of the lava, melt some lava, form lava inside that could then flow to the surface and cool. 
So at some point around three, three and a half billion years ago, it flooded all the lower lying areas. All the places that had been really been heavily hit by impacts got flooded. In the last three billion years, did it change a whole lot? Not really. The basic patterns of what you see are still there. We've just had a few more impacts occur on top of what we had already seen. So big changes occurred early on in the history of the moon. It's very, very slow. Three billion years worth of change did not do a whole lot to the surface of the moon since then. So Maria formed about three, three and a half billion years ago. And since then there has not been a lot of change to what's going on on the surface of the moon. Chapter. Two chapters done. Wow. We'll finish the class next week. No. All right. Looking at the terrestrial planets. So we're going to look at one section on the terrestrial planets. We'll get to get started onto this. And then we'll finish up with the Jovian planets and the other little bits and pieces of the solar system next time. So terrestrial planets are the inner four planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Um, one thing we note about Venus and Mercury, when we look at them in the sky, they're always very close to the sun. What you call we explained by in the heliocentric system, putting the sun at the center, the Earth orbits here, and then Venus and Mercury orbit inside closer to the sun. So no matter where you are on the Earth, and no matter where they are, you can only see them at a certain distance away from the sun. And in fact, Venus can be seen at most about 47 degrees away from the sun. How far is 47 degrees? That's about 90 degrees would be going from the horizon to straight up, so that's about halfway. That's about as high as Venus can ever get in the sky. Mercury's a lot lower, 28 degrees. So it never gets all that far away from the horizon. That's why they're very difficult to see. Venus stands out only because it's so incredibly bright. Mercury, much, much fainter, is very hard to see. Everybody's seen Venus. If you don't know it, you've probably still seen it. The real bright object that you've seen in the evening sky or in the morning sky if you're up early, that's usually Venus. Mercury, you've actually got to go looking for. If you want to go see Mercury, you've got to look up when it's going to be that's furthest from the sun, and you've got to go out looking for it. You're not just going to see it by accident. Venus you won't miss. When it's up there and you know, coming up in a, another couple months when Venus is really getting prominent in the evening sky, you'll notice a very bright object in the west. That's going to be Venus. But they're always very close to the sun. They're never going to appear very far away from it. In terms of rotation, for a long, long time, until almost 50 years ago, uh, Mercury was thought to be locked to the sun. Right? The moon is locked to the earth, always keeps one side faced towards the earth. Well, it made sense that then, okay, Mercury is so close to the sun, gravitational force of the sun is going to affect it and cause it to be locked to the sun. So it's always going to keep one side towards the sun. Well, that would have had the interesting property of making, making Mercury the hottest planet in the solar system. Okay, that makes sense. It's close to the sun. It's going to be the hottest. It also would have been the coldest also would have been the coldest planet in the solar system. If you have one side that's always pointing away from the sun, that would have been the coldest place in the solar system. That would have been coldest than out at Neptune, colder than out in the Kuiper Belt, because you've got no atmosphere. So right, the Earth here, the Earth gets heated up. Some of that heat travels through the atmosphere and warms other parts of it. If you just have a big ball of rock there, rock isn't all that good at conducting heat. 
right? So the heat doesn't get conducted through the surface of through the surface of the planet, and that far side would just stay all if it was always pointing away it would be incredibly cold. Now it turns out that isn't the case. It actually does have a uh, what we call a resonance that there is a relationship between the day and the year on Mercury, but instead of being one to one one day and one year being exactly the same, that it's a three to two. That three days on Mercury, three rotations on its axis, axis are actually equal to two of its years. So every second year it comes back around, then it's the same, it's back the same spot is back up overhead. But it changes, it's a, it's a much more complicated uh, process than I want, really want to go into in detail, but it's not locked completely there is some kind of relationship, there is a relationship, there is a gravitational relationship between the orbit of Mercury, how long it spins on its axis, and on its year. So again, I'm not asking you to understand the details of the resonance, I wanted to give you a little bit of an idea, and I really like going through the history, you know, it could have been, could have been that Mercury was the hottest and the coldest planet in the solar system. Turns out it's neither now. So it's actually none of the above. It's actually not the hottest or the coldest. Certainly things further out are much colder. And actually Venus, because of its atmosphere and the greenhouse effect that we'll talk about, is actually much, much hotter on the surface. In terms of atmospheres, Mercury really has no, no atmosphere. It's much too hot there. It's too close to the sun. And it's too small and it doesn't have enough gravity to hold on to the atmosphere. So Mercury has essentially nothing. Um, Venus has an extremely dense atmosphere, a uh, hundred times the density of the Earth's. So, you know, Earth's atmospheric pressure, that's what you're used to. Now imagine a hundred of those pushing on you, if you even can, you know. It's like going well down below the surface, well down below in a, uh, the surface of the ocean. I mean, a lot of pressure pushing on you. Not just down a few feet, but you're going way down there to get a hundred atmospheres of pressure pushing on you. It also has an extremely high temperature. Now we only see the clouds. We can't actually see the surface of Venus from the Earth or from orbit. We've sent satellites in orbit. We still can't see the surface of Venus. Its cloud cover is complete. It's complete dense clouds that cover the entire thing. This is actually an ultraviolet image, not a visible image. So you're seeing some kind of gaps in there, some sort of different parts of it. If you look visibly, it's just completely blotted out. You cannot see a thing on the surface. Our only images of the surface are from a couple of the Soviet spacecraft that actually went and landed on the surface. They didn't last very long. You've got atmosphere that's a hundred times the pressure of the Earth's. So not pressures that we're usually used to building machines to hold up to. We have temperatures that are hot enough to melt lead, pushing about 900 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, 900 degrees Fahrenheit is pretty hot. You turn your oven on hot, that's what, 450 degrees or so is pretty high for an oven. So that's not, that's not Venus. Venus is twice as hot as that. So extremely hot, hot enough to actually melt lead. So any sort of electronic equipment and spacecraft that were sent down there lasted for between 15 minutes and maybe an hour or two to send back images. And that was all that they could stand of the incre incredibly intense pressures and incredibly intense temperatures. Mars's atmosphere, Venus's atmosphere is also almost primarily carbon dioxide, almost all carbon dioxide. 
Mars is also almost all carbon dioxide, but is exact opposite of Venus in that it's incredibly thick atmosphere here. Mars has an incredibly thin atmosphere, about 1 one-hundredth of the Earth's. So not enough that you could go there even if it had oxygen, not enough that you could go there and be able to breathe. So you wouldn't be able to take, you wouldn't be able to stand the lack of pressure, let alone the fact that there's nothing there for you to breathe. So quite different looking at the three objects here. Mercury, no atmosphere at all. Venus, an extremely dense atmosphere. And then Mars with an extremely thin atmosphere. So you've got, you've got three planets. You've got Venus with a real dense atmosphere and really high temperatures. You've got Mars with a really thin atmosphere and very low temperatures. And you've got Earth right in between. You know, the nice atmosphere and the nice temperatures. You know, even when we complain about being too hot or being too cold, you know, it's a lot better than any of the other planets. So if you, if you don't like... You know, if you don't like the cold, well, imagine or the heat. Imagine the heat on on Venus when you're talking, you know, 900 degrees or so Fahrenheit. So much, much hotter. So certainly, the only hospitable planet for life is the Earth. Could you have had life on Mars? Mars is actually a good possibility, maybe at some point in the past. Um, nothing like, and I should have brought should have brought the pictures they were show, I was seeing yesterday of the little raft. Did anybody see the little rat on Mars? That they find, yeah, they found this. Apparently some UFO site has pictures from one of the Mars rovers that shows this thing that looks like a little rat. Likely just a rock formation that happens to you know, get your mind thinking, hey, it looks like a rat. And once people start saying it looks like this thing, everybody sees the same thing. But go and take a look for the rat on Mars. Do a search for rat on Mars. There's actually images of it scattered around that were, were, quite, were quite interesting. So, but no, no sign of that kind of life, but perhaps some very small you know, microbes in terms of life. Ah, Mercury. We can't see Mercury from the Earth very well. Our best images are, to put it the least, horrible looking at, looking at Mercury from the Earth. If you imagine, you've got tw- you're only looking 27 degrees up. 27 degrees, if you hold your hands out to the horizon, is a little bit less than three-fifths up. So if you've got to point your telescope that low in the sky to see Mercury, you're looking through a lot of atmosphere. Remember how turbulent the atmosphere gets? Well, it just messes up anything to look, try to look at images. Our best images um, are from the Messenger spacecraft, which went into orbit around Mercury about a year ago, and really are giving us our first good maps of Mercury. We had one flyby of Mercury earlier in the 1970s. Until about a year ago, those were our best images of Mercury. So now we actually have a spacecraft that is orbiting around Mercury, giving us much better images and a much better study of the surface. So we're learning more and more about Mercury, actually able to see it. You'll never see anything like this from Earth. You'll never see anything like this from Hubble Space Telescope, anything like that. But it looks a lot like the moon. Surface ends up looking a lot like the moon. One distinctive type feature that we see on uh, Mars are the scarps. And these are cliffs that form on the surface of Mars. And you can see some of them scattered around here. Just these little cliffs here. Don't look like all that much, right? Don't forget, we're looking at a very wide field image. In order to see these, these have to be very big. And they're about three kilometers high. Three kilometers, about two miles. So it's not just a little cliff that you're going to want to scale, you know, a couple hundred feet that you want to scale. You're actually talking about something that's two miles high, you know, mountain size cliffs. These likely formed when the planet was cooling. So as the planet cooled, if its outer crust cooled first, 
Then the inner part started to cool and condense. As that happened, then the outer part of the stuff kind of buckled in onto the crust that had cooled underneath and formed these scarps. So just sort of the crust trying to settle as the planet, as the planet slowly cooled off. The surface is much like the moon and looks a lot like that in terms of a lot of craters. No atmosphere. It actually is very similar in structure of the surface to the moon. So lots and lots of craters, surface that has not changed in many billions of years, which is quite a difference compared to the Earth and compared to the other of the terrestrial planets. Let me finish up here. Let me look at Venus and then we'll finish up here. Venus actually looks a lot like the Earth in terms of its uh, surface features from what we can see. Um, these are, this is a radar map instead. I said we can't get a real good view of Venus because of the clouds. But we can use radar. These are both radar maps of the Earth and of Venus. They don't look all that different. Right? Okay, continents are different. Yes, there's no nice North America there. There's no Australia. But the general structure, you see some larger areas, some big continents present on Venus. You see some oceans. Not oceans in terms of water, but lower lying areas on Venus. Those are the areas that if you could flood Venus with water, you would then have the bluer areas would be the oceans and you would have a large continent up there towards the northern part, a little bit towards the south and maybe a string of islands or smaller continents towards the middle. <coughs> so the details are, are different than the Earth, but the overall structure is pretty much the same. Do I have the image here? It's actually a picture taken from the surface of Venus, one of the few that we actually have. This was from the Venera, Venera spacecraft in the early, late 70s, early 80s. I have to check which one this exactly was. You see some rocks, a little piece of the spacecraft here, and then you see some rocks out in, the, out in the distance. Doesn't look all that different than a desert area on the Earth. And we'll see similarities with Venus and Mars and the Earth that they really don't look all that different. Much many fewer craters on Venus, not as many craters as you have on the Moon or Mercury. But uh, the overall structure does look a lot like what we see here on the Earth. Now did I have, oops, let's not tell you what, let's not start on Mars. I don't want to get into another, don't want to get into another planet right now. I'm not going to finish up Mars. We've got a lab, got a lab for you anyway to do. But Venus has been studied, just finishing up with Venus, it's been studied uh, very well now from orbit, we have really good radar maps of the entire surface. We don't have a good view of what it really looks like like this. This is actually slightly distorted. It's really more of a gray color. If you could take out the atmospheric effects, all the particles in the atmosphere that are causing problems with it, that are distorting the image a little bit. But very, very rocky and again looks much like you know, a, desert, a desert basin on the surface of the Earth. The atmosphere of Venus, again, was much thicker and has a very intense carbon dioxide, very and very high heat, very high temperatures on the, on the, in the atmosphere of Venus. So not a very hospitable place to land. Probably the last of the terrestrial planets that would ever be landed on. Yeah? How did we? Uh, the spacecraft was able, to, was able to land. It didn't survive very long. So the materials, if you make it out of materials that melt at even higher temperatures than 900 degrees, you know, 
then you can actually have it then you could actually have it survive. And, but the pressure and the temperature, it won't survive very long. So one of the reasons, you know, how are you going to put a person, how would you land a person on Venus? It would be very difficult, a very difficult thing to do. Just because of, first of all, you've got to get through a denser atmosphere than you have on the Earth. You've got to be able to land through that atmosphere, which is a much harder thing to do. And once you get there, you've got to be able to survive temperatures and pressures that we're not used to, that are much higher than we're used to. And you've got an atmospheric composition, not just carbon dioxide, but it's got lots of uh, pretty things like sulfuric acid in the atmosphere and hydrofluoric acid, which are uh, not, not very pleasant things to, to deal with. So that kind of stuff. Between that, that's why this craft didn't last very long. Some of the later ones, you know, based on knowledge from the earlier ones, were able to last a little longer. So we were able to actually expand them. But most of them were not able to last all that, all that long. So I'm going to finish up with Venus today, then we'll do Mars and head out to the Jovian planets on Monday. So I'll pick up there on Monday actually talking a little bit about, about Mars. Questions, questions? Two and a half, almost three chapters. So.